The Old Premeds Podcast, session number 20. You're a non-traditional student entering the medical field on your terms. You may have had some hiccups along the way, or you're now changing careers. You're ready to change course and go back and serve others as a physician. This podcast is here to help answer your questions and help educate you on your journey to becoming a physician. Now, if you're new to the old pre-meds podcast, we have typically gone through the old pre-meds forms, which you can get at oldpremeds.org, and taken questions straight from there. This episode is going to be a little bit different from that. I'm taking an episode that I recorded a long time ago for what was originally called the Medical School Headquarters podcast, now called the Pre-Med Years. I'm going to take a interview that I did with Kate, who was at the time a 56-year-old medical student, and talk about and the interview we talked about her journey and everything that she had to deal with on on that journey. And I think it'll be great to listen to here. Obviously, this is the old pre-meds podcast. Kate obviously was an old pre-med and an old medical student. The original interview was session number 11 on the medical school headquarters podcast. Again, now the pre-med years. You can find that at medicalschoolhq.net slash 11. And obviously, I'll play it here for you right now. If you liked this kind of information, this type of podcast, this is a lot of what we do over at the pre-med years. I interview a lot of interesting pre-meds, medical students, physicians, deans, a little bit of everybody. And uh, if you haven't checked out that podcast, do so. It's the pre-med years. Again, however you're listening to this, I highly recommend you subscribe to these podcasts so that they come automatically to you every week in whatever pod player, pod catcher you're using. We're in iTunes, we're now in Google Play Music, Stitcher, wherever you can find us, you can subscribe there. Let's go ahead and jump into this interview with Kate. Let's begin just by talking about where you are currently in your path to becoming a, a physician. All right, well, currently I'm a third year student at WVSOM, which is Osteopathic Medical School, and I'm doing, uh, so I'm on rotations, and our school has a statewide campus, so it has a variety of different locations, and I'm in a rural site so that I can do the majority of my rotations at at a rural location because that's uh, my interest is rural family practice. And why is that? Why is that? Oh, geez. Well, Partly, I think, probably because I grew up on eight acres out in the woods, uh, lived uh, in rural locations a lot of my life, and so I want to practice where I'd like to live, which is somewhere rural. And before going to medical school, I was a nurse midwife and uh, worked at a National Health Service Corps site for my first uh, job, which was very rural Tennessee really fell in love with rural medicine at the time. It's, you're more, I guess, a big fish in a little pond, but um, you really have an opportunity to impact the community that you're living in, in a lot of ways beyond just the patients that you're seeing, and that really appeals to me. So you just mentioned that 
you had a job before medical school. And yes. And you are a non-traditional medical student. Tell, tell everybody it. that's listening how old you are. I'm 56. I just turned 56. Wow. Happy birthday. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so you're a 56-year-old third-year medical student. That's exactly right. Okay. So yes, the... I usually preface that by telling people I'm a glutton for punishment. <laughs> <laughs> that, and I find that amazing. I think um, when I was talking to Rich, the the mm-hmm. the guy from oldpremeds.org, he was talking about an article from Syracuse's medical school from Upstate about a 63-year-old, I believe, first-year really? student that they had accepted. First year Oh my God! Yeah, so there there are more gluttons out there. <laughs> I feel for for him or her. <laughs> so so let's go back back to your high school and undergrad years. Okay. Were were you prior pre med? Yes, I was. <laughs> and what happened? What happened? Um, well, I'd say a number of things happened. I I decided that I wanted to be a doctor when I was ten. And I never changed my mind until midway through college. So I was a biology pre-med major. And um, I picked the college I did because I heard that folks from there got into University of Maryland Med School, which was the one I wanted to go to, before grads from any other colleges. So, I mean, I was really, it was really targeted. Um, so a couple things happened. Uh, one was that I worked during the summer um, at University of Maryland uh, for my uncle, who re- was a research hematologist, and um, so I had a nice lab job, and I was interacting with some of the medical students in, in the hospital, and also I was in the hospital and, and seeing the roles a bit, and um, a couple things stood out to me. One was, at that time, it was a very adversarial program. Um, in that uh, very competitive program in that they graded on a curve and whoever had the lowest grade in the class, even if it was like an 85, failed. And so the students tended to sabotage one another because that <laughs> they, were, they were like ripping required articles out of the bound journals in the library so nobody else could get hold of them, uh, that sort of thing. I thought, well, this is just a toxic environment. This is horrible. So that was not, the medical school began to look less attractive to me, partly because of that. The other thing is I was in and out of the hospital, and what I saw was the doctors come in, read the chart, look at the labs, you know, write some orders and leave. They didn't seem to be doing anything. It was uh, a very short-term, you know, medical management, and the nurses were actually getting in there and, you know, turning to patients and changing dressings and doing hands-on things where you could see the result of your actions right away. And that appealed to me. I think I was sick of school and I wanted to be doing something practical where I would be working right away. So the thought of four more years of school and three years of residency, you know, it just, it was overwhelming to me I thought you know I think actually I'd rather be doing what the nurses are doing and um, and get in there and be doing it sooner so I transferred um, after my uh, junior year of college I transferred into the junior year of a nursing program so I ended up getting a BSN five years uh, after I started school okay so it was a combination of 
toxic environment and a, a, <clears throat> a desire for some instant gratification with what you were doing. Right, right. Some hands-on instant gratification, see the result of your actions kind of thing. And probably, it, it you know, I was thinking about raising kids too, and at the time I wasn't sure how I could do that and spend much time with children uh, it, with medical school and all that. I, I didn't know anybody who had done that. So I was thinking it was just, you know, postpone having children till you were much older. And so I would say that factored in there a lot. But frankly, I didn't know much about the whole process. I didn't realize that I would probably be applying to a bunch of different medical schools. I didn't realize that uh, it was possible to have a family and, and do medical school. So, so uh, I would say I pretty much lacked a lot of research into the whole thing to begin with when I made my decision. But, um, but in fact, nursing did suit me very well uh, for many years, and I, and I do enjoy that, um, uh, seeing the results of what you did with your hands right away. Okay, so you enjoyed nursing. Mm-hmm. Where did that itch come back to go back into medicine, uh, go back into the physician side of the house and go to medical school? Hmm. Well, um, obviously it was fairly gradual <laughs> because look at my age. <laughs> um, it wasn't like I dithered for 30 years. I was, you know, I was very much, you know, doing my nursing thing. Um, I was an ICU nurse uh, for 13 years, which is a lot longer than you pro- one should probably be an ICU nurse uh, because it's really stressful. Um, and then I switched gears and um, went to nurse midwifery school. So that was a huge, a huge switch and um, practiced as a nurse midwife and then started teaching nursing. And I would say it was while I was teaching nursing that things began to change. Um, I was very involved in the public health community in um, my town. Uh, I was uh, working one day a week at a free health clinic. I did that for five years. And um, I was teaching community health nursing. And so I placed my students into community health agencies all over the city and was visiting them there, uh, you know, observing them. So I really kind of got a, a big picture of... Um, all these different avenues of public health and the unmet need for primary care in um, uh, the country really jumps out at you if you're at all involved in, in, uh, in public health. I was involved in a couple of projects that were going on, a pilot project in Virginia that was looking at alternatives to meet the need for uh, prenatal and maternity care in some communities where the hospitals had closed their units. And we had a very successful pilot project group, mainly because of the leadership of some physicians that were involved in that group. And um, so I began to see that that physicians could really be a huge um, instrument for change and for effective organization around a public health problem. And that without that physician, um, it just didn't go forward nearly as fast. I had had some uh, some attempts of things that I was trying to do in, in some uh, communities of need that just took years and years, and then I worked on this project. And when you had the doc working with you, you know, it just opened up a lot of doors. So that's really when I began thinking about being a physician myself um, and um, 
I, I knew I wanted to get more involved in family practice and taking care of the whole family and not just the one, which is, uh, you know, my area prior to that. And instead of, and I don't think I would have been satisfied with becoming a family nurse practitioner because when you work as a nurse practitioner for many years, you begin to, I think, really get frustrated with taking care of only the common medical problems. You're aware that you've got a very encyclopedic knowledge of a lot of things, but um, it's not detailed enough anywhere. It's like a mile wide and, and, you know, only six inches deep. I just really wanted to know more and um, wanted to have that, that um, background of knowledge if I was going to go into taking care of the whole family. So part of it was for practice and part of it was for uh, being involved in, uh, in public health and being able to be an effective change agent. Okay. Those are all great That's reasons. A long, a long answer. Sorry. A great answer. <laughs> so how old were you at this point? Um, 50. Okay. I was 50 when I decided to go back to medical school. Okay, 50 years old. Mm-hmm. Family? Um, at that point, my daughter had finished college, so my youngest. So, okay. yeah, I have two kids, but, the, but they were both out of school at that point. Okay, grown and out of the house. And- yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Taking care of themselves. Right. Where did you start to begin researching what it would take to go back and get accepted into medical school? Um, I Googled old pre-medical students. <laughs> and I'm sure <laughs> and OPM. popped up was the OPM website, the old pre-meds website. And... Um, so, uh, so I started reading some articles on there. Really, that truthfully, that was the very first thing I found. Um, and so, the first thing I learned was that I needed to do my pre, uh, you know, what prerequisites I needed, and um, uh, you know, that I need to take the MCAT. And I had had some of them. I'd only had one semester of organic chem and one of physics. So I think I needed to retake those, and. So my way of thinking, since I had taken biology and chemistry in 1975 and 19, yeah, 19, both of them in 1975, that I really probably ought to do that over again as well. <laughs> so I started looking for a place to take inorganic chemistry, since I figured, okay, it's going to be two years, one year for inorganic and one for organic, so let's start with inorganic, that's the first thing. That was, uh, that was my first uh, step, was to try to register for, for a course in chemistry. Okay. Did you reach out besides Google and and the website, the oldpremeds.org website? Did you reach out to any pre-med advisors? Um, no, I really wasn't aware of the existence of pre-med advisors. What I did do though, interestingly, is talk to my uh uh my family physicians because um it's a large family practice that used to be part of a residency program. And so I knew they had had quite a bit of information on, you know, uh, medical education. And um, I had uh, uh, been uh, speaking with them for some years about a outreach prenatal project that I that I wanted them to back me up for that they were very supportive. So so I talked to those guys first and said, you know, I'm thinking about medical school, what can you tell me, you know, what are your suggestions? So I would say most of the advice I got was probably from 
from my own doctor who was actually very encouraging. Okay. Yeah, that's that's good. And I, I encourage a lot of people, uh, especially new people looking for shadowing opportunities to go reach out to their doctor or maybe their parents' right. doctors. Yeah, I think that's a, a step number one. Yes, because you already have some relationship with them. Yep. Okay. So you reach out for a little bit of help. You start gathering some information. And let's talk about your post-bac program. I think when some initial uh, dialogue that we had, you were trying to build your own post-bac program, uh, but, right. uh, but had some difficulties with that? Or why did you go the route of a, a structured post-bac? Well, um, uh, I went to the main university in my city to try to sign up for chemistry. And I registered as a non-curricular student. Um, and then you, uh, you sign up for classes after the regular students who are enrolled in a major at the university. Well, by that time, there were no openings in chemistry. And um, you can go the first day of class and try to get added, which I did. But, you know, I was behind the, the nursing majors and the bio majors and the chem majors. You know, that, that's a hot ticket um, course. And I simply couldn't get in. So, so one semester went by. And the next semester, the same thing happened. And I also uh, tried to get a chemistry class at every college in my city or in a reasonable driving distance, and I couldn't get into any chemistry class. Now, um, since then, I've heard the strategy of actually applying to the school as if you were going to do a second undergrad, and you don't have to complete that, but just being enrolled as a regular student, then you would be able to get into classes. I, I didn't think about that at the time, and um, so I was just frustrated. I'm like, I just simply can't get the classes I need. So I looked uh, online. There's the AAMC uh, website that tells you what where the post-bac um, programs are and um, and looked at the ones in my state and applied to two of them. Okay. I also thought it was appealing. One of them lets you finish within one year. So I thought, okay, get all my classes in and be ready to apply. Okay. When you're doing this, I'm assuming from the sounds of it that you stopped working full-time? Um, only uh, when I started the post-bac program. That's when I stopped working. Okay. Yes. Okay. Was that scary? I was... <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> um, well, you know, for somebody like myself somewhat later in life who's probably been in debt for a while and worked hard to get out of debt, I, I was, you know, I had no debt. I was in a good financial situation. And I had to quit my job and move, actually, to go to the program that I, um, that I went to. And uh, so I had to figure out, you know, what am I going to live on for a year while I'm doing this? And it's very intensive. I thought I would be able to, to uh, do a little bit like teach classes or something um, uh, and work part-time. And, in fact, I, I was not able to work at all and be able to put the concentration I needed to into that program. So I borrowed money from a home equity loan. That's that's what I did. I took money out, and that's what I lived on for a year to do the post program and what paid for whatever of my tuition wasn't covered by uh, the federal loan that I took. So, yeah, very scary. Okay. Yeah, I'm sure many people, and post programs are becoming more and more popular there's mm -hmm. 140 of them now listed on the aamc website right 
And so I think many, many career changers like yourself, that's one of the big obstacles that they face is they have a steady job and they have to walk away from it to yeah. pursue their passion of medicine. And, and it's, it's encouraging and, and it's very courageous that you're able to do that and obviously successfully do that because now you're in medical school. So, Well, um, you know, it helps. That I, had a, I had an asset. I thought I was going to be able to sell my house and clear that debt, but, you know, that's when the housing market fell back. That's right after, right after I uh, yeah got the second mortgage on my house there. So um so yeah I still haven't sold that house, but um <laughs> uh, but in the in the global scheme of things, medical school itself is so expensive that the expense for a postback program and for that year is really probably the smallest expense towards the whole big goal that you're going to have. And when you realize I'm going to be borrowing scads of money anyway for medical school, you know, what's important is that you're able to clear enough time to do well, because if you don't do well in your postback classes, you're not going to get into medical school. So you, you just have to, you know, do whatever it takes to get those good grades during that program. Definitely. And for me, that was quitting. So. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'm going to edit this part out that I'm going to talk to you now. Um, okay. The the microphone that you're using picks up yes. on you slamming your hand down. Oh, <laughs> you're sorry. getting very emphatic. <laughs> and okay. I love it, but it, it just comes through. So oh, okay, uh, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> I'll stop doing that. <laughs> that's all right. It, it sounds great. Besides that, um, wh- while we're on money, mm-hmm. you did you look into um, scholarships or the, like the national health? Uh, scholarships for medical school. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> um, yes. Okay. Yes. In fact, that was my plan. Was okay. to uh, I w- I hoped for securing a National Health Service Corps scholarship. Okay. That's in fact how I went to midwifery school, and then I did two year you know at a payback site from that, and that so that was my hope for medical school. So I ha- I applied every year. And I have not gotten a National Health Corps scholarship. Um, my understanding, I actually talked to some um, officials from there, and uh, one of the things they look at is if you're from a disadvantaged background, and if you get a federal scholarship to disadvantaged students, um, that puts you in the highest category for getting the, getting the scholarships, okay? I'm not in that category. And the... the uh, the majority of the scholarships that were um, given out were were within that category. So, uh, so that's something to think about. Um, uh, so, I have Plan B, which is to do a um, loan repayment after after I get out, which is uh, less competitive, I guess. I'm more far more likely to get that. Okay. Because I am planning to practice in an underserved area anyway. So. Okay. And what's that? What's the loan repayment program? Who's that the loan through? repayment program, that is also, um, well, there's uh, the National Health Service Court loan repayment, which uh, pays um, $50,000 of your loan for every year that you spend in the uh, underserved area. You have to secure the job in the area at a qualified site, and then you apply for loan repayment. Um, 
There are also some state programs which generally um, pay between twenty-five and thirty thousand a year in loan repayments. So there are some different options out there. Okay, good. I'm I'm glad you're looking into that. I don't think I don't think enough people look into those programs that are available. Yeah. My preceptor for my first rotation this year um, is doing his uh, uh, loan repayment through the National Health Service Corps, you know, uh, at the, as I said, I'm practicing in a rural site in West Virginia. So, okay. uh, so his clinic uh, qualifies for that. Okay. So you're in your post-bac program and you, you take the MCAT at some point in that program. Right. And... You're starting to gather all your uh, materials for applying to medical school. Right. What What was involved in your decision-making when you chose what schools you were applying to? Um, that's a great question. Uh, I initially picked six schools, and then the... Um, director at my postback program told me that wasn't enough schools to apply to that I need to find find five or six more to apply to <laughs> and suggested I expand my criteria a little bit. Um, I knew I wanted to do uh, primary care and specifically rural primary care. So I was looking at um, uh, schools that had some emphasis in that area. And I also have an interest in uh, global medical uh, outreach. And um, so, for example, um, I looked at uh, um, Albert Einstein Medical School at Yeshiva University because they've got a global health center. I looked at uh, Tulane for the same reason, because of their their uh, global medicine. Um, the other schools that I picked were schools that um, had uh, a focus on uh, rural primary care. Um, I also looked geographically because um, my family is a huge support system for me. Both my, you know, my kids, my siblings, my uh, my parents, and they're all, you know, in the Maryland, Virginia area. So I was looking for some place that was not too far remote from there. So I tended to stay on the East Coast um, because why put yourself in the most stressful situation you're ever going to be in in your life and move yourself away from your support system? That didn't seem to make a lot of sense. So um, tried to stay stay somewhat close to there. So those were those were uh, the main things I was um, I was looking at. I specifically picked osteopathic medical schools um, because. I was, uh, uh, there's an element of hands-on um, uh, emphasis in osteopathic medicine, which appealed to me. As you remember, that's kind of why I went to nursing instead of medicine. And so that sort of preserves my uh, uh, approach, I guess, um, to patients. I like the um, uh, perspective, I guess, the philosophy of osteopathic medicine, and um, some of the main schools that emphasize rural primary care are, in fact, DO schools. Um, so uh, not all of them, but many of them. So I ended up picking um, uh, six osteopathic and six MD schools to apply to. Okay. When when you sit there and you, you click submit on your application, what's going through your head? Oh, geez. Well, I would say mainly a profound sense of relief that I finally finished the application. 
conversation because it's rather laborious, as you yes. probably remember. It's it's very long, um, but uh, uh, I think uh, the other thing is you're immediately wondering when you're going to hear something. It, it, it's uh, you know it, you know it's not realistic to expect instant feedback, but you but you end up checking every day and <laughs> thinking, okay, somebody. When's somebody going to say something? You know, am I going to get a secondary? Uh, that was I didn't realize at the time that most schools send out a secondary application. So uh, you know, so that was kind of a pleasant surprise that I kept getting these secondaries really quickly. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, but of course, you know, then it's the the whole waiting game for for whether you're going to be asked to interview. So, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. When I when I applied. Through the through the AMCAS application, which is the main application right. for allopathic medical schools, the it was the first year that it was an electronic application, and oh. it was a mess. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, so I, I don't want to relive they those days. They worked the kinks up before I got there. I think. <laughs> Hopefully, yeah. It was it was many days of repeating information, inputting information, because it would just delete all your stuff. It was fun. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, what, so you applied to 11, 12 schools, something like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How many interviews did you get? How many interviews did I get? Let me think. Um, uh, one. Uh, six. Wow. Outstanding. And a mix of MD and DO schools? Yes. Okay. Very good. That's a, a strong application. Thank you. What, during your interview trail, obviously, you're, you're the, the one sticking out. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, yeah. that's, that's not to say that you look funny, but... Yeah. <laughs> you, it's definitely not the same application as everybody else, that's correct. for sure. And yes. how do you think that affected both yourself on the interview trail and the people that were interviewing you? Um, I think that actually I may have gotten some of the interviews from people who were partly because they were like, who in the world is this? <laughs> I want, I want to meet this crazy person. That's right. I want to, what in the world's going on with her? So, you know, I think it's always good if your if your application can raise some questions, so they want to get you in to find out more. I actually think that's that's a workable strategy, particularly for non trads. Um, but uh, I would say um, for myself, uh, I was. I had kind of gotten over my apprehension about the fact that I was an older applicant. I was real nervous about that to begin with, but the director at my post-bac program um, talked to me about that some and really convinced me of um, you know what I, what I believe to be true, which is that you have a much richer narrative to bring uh, to the interview. And... Um, because you've had the opportunity to do things. And so there's just a great deal that you can talk about. Um, so I think on the whole, uh, it gave me um, some really strong things to, to talk about in the interviews. Um, I think my age worked against me. At, there was one particular uh, interview where I felt that the, the three representatives from the school who talked to me 
all had a very positive uh, image, but I got the feeling that the admission committee had a very negative view on my my age. And I say that because I, I saw a copy of my application and they had my birth date circled on their Xerox copy with 52 and three exclamation points after it. So I rather think somebody had some concerns about my age at that particular school. But uh, the interviews actually went very well at that school. And so I think it kind of got past that initial impression of, you know, what in the world is going on here. Okay. Very. I mean, I find that fascinating. And I, I I think it is... And I, I brought this up, or, or one of my other interviews uh, brought it up uh, on a previous podcast, that it, it is a little bit different for the interviewer to try to change their kind of questioning and, and, and right. what they're trying to extrapolate from the from the person that's interviewing, because it's not the 22-year-old fresh out of uh, or currently in undergraduate school that has pretty much the same path as everybody else. Right, right, right. So yeah. I'm sure they enjoy talking to people like yourself a little bit more because there's a little more adventure behind well, the story. It's funny because I got asked questions that had to do with my teaching experience in, in nursing, uh, teaching in nursing schools, and uh, I almost got educator to educator type questions. You know, um, this is this is sort of what our strategy, our teaching strategy is. And what do you think about that? And what what sort of, sort of experiences do you have there? So so that was uh, that was a little different. I think uh, just um, uh, there was perhaps a more collegial footing uh, from some of the some of the interviewers. Good. On your your path to getting into medical school, what was, and maybe in medical school, what, what has been your biggest obstacle that you've had to overcome? God, there's so many. (laughs) Uh, It's, it's difficult to, uh, to say. Um, I think, uh, I think that, um, in the path to getting to medical school and getting actually to the point of applying to medical school, the biggest obstacle was myself talking, talking myself out of it. Um, and, uh, um, I mean, I talked myself out of it when I was a pre-med major in college and, uh, for some good reasons. And, and, uh, there were, that was not a, not a terrible decision at the time, but when you approach this later in life, it's very easy to to tell yourself there's no way I have a chance. Or what if I commit all these resources, you know, quitting my job, putting myself in debt, uh, putting, you know, giving up a year of my life to do the questions, uh, to do the prerequisites. Um, what if uh, this is just a pipe dream? So you can really talk yourself out of trying. And in fact, your chances are really good um, if you do the prereqs and do well in your classes and get a decent score in the MCAT, your age is really not a huge barrier to getting in. That might have been the case, you know, 15 or 20 years ago, but that really isn't the case now. Um, So I think it's important not to talk yourself out of trying. So maintaining that 
uh, forward momentum. And particularly when you run into an obstacle, you're not successful. Maybe, you know, maybe somebody reject, you know, somebody rejects your application or you don't get an interview at the school you wanted to get an interview at. Um, just, uh, uh, to maintain that forward momentum is probably the uh, the hardest thing, and you've got to have a reserve of energy to just keep pushing. That's great advice. Um, I think there's there's a ton of great information that you shared today. I want to end with just asking what your future plans are. I know you talked a little bit about it with the National Health uh, Service Corps. Mm-hmm. Um, but what what do you picture your ideal practicing situation is? Um, I see myself being, um, uh, you know, like Leonard McCoy, an old country doctor. No, um, <laughs> uh, practicing in uh, a little town, maybe in Appalachia, uh, Appalachia, pardon me, um, and uh, uh, being being the community provider. And I also see myself, um, uh, doing, uh, short-term medical outreach trips a couple times a year, um, in, uh, in other countries. I've, I've been on three so far and that's, uh, that's an interest I, uh, expect to continue. But what you're doing in rural medicine is very like what you're doing in, um, global outreach in that you're practicing in a lower resource setting with uh, people that are uh, perhaps a lot needier and not getting, um, maybe not getting regular care. Uh, it's just uh, a little more episodic, I guess. So I see myself uh, self doing that. All right. I hope that was an interesting twist on the old pre-meds podcast. Again, I just wanted to let you know that there is a lot uh, there there are a lot more interesting interviews over at the pre-med years. Again, you can find that at medicalschoolhq.net slash listen, slash listen, or you can subscribe again to the pre-med years in whatever podcast player that you use. Uh, next week, we'll be back with more questions and more answers and a lot more fun to help guide you on your path as you are a non-traditional student on this journey keep pushing forward, keep being motivated, and I look forward to talking to you again next week. Did you know that we're working on an MCAT podcast, go to the MCAT podcast.com for more information.